I'm going to do announcements. Uh, a quick announcement. Uh, one quick announcement, and then a bigger announcement. June 22nd is pool day for the ladies uh, to take the kids. I think uh, it's for moms and aunts and grandmas and whatever else it says there, friends, neighbors too. Uh, so at Paulette's house, thank you, Paulette, for opening up your home. So uh, make plans to join them on June 22nd, bring a lunch and whatever it takes for you to jump in the pool. Uh, so do that. So uh, the other announcement is, hey, we're finally ready to move into our new building. Yay. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So the fire marshal, the public works department, and the building department have all signed off on our temporary occupancy permit. So we're ready to move down the street right over there next week. So don't come here. Go there. Um, Praise God. So I want to especially thank Jennifer for opening up uh, Wardens. This is, this is typically when I would bring someone up, but I'm sure Jennifer would appreciate me not doing that, so I won't. Uh, but we are thankful um, and uh, appreciate um, all that you've done to allow us to be here and for God to bless us to be here. Um, so our first service will be next Sunday, May 15th. So invite your friends and your family to come and celebrate. We should just keep clapping. I'm so excited. Um, God is so faithful in providing um, each step of the way. It's been pretty neat, for lack of a better word. It's been neat to see him work. Um, and he's opened up doors uh, when they needed to be open. He's knocked down obstacles that arose and um, our new facility is ready for us to come and worship and gather together. And so many of you have volunteered your time and assisted in the design, the construction, the building, the labor, the cleanup, the everything. Um, late at night, early in the morning, on the weekends, offer the service unto the Lord. So thank you all for that. And on the screen, you'll see uh, a graphic here that will show our parking layout and the layout of the rooms. Um, so you, you should have had one, picked up one, one per family. And um, if you have any questions, you can ask. But essentially, uh, we get to move in and we get to park in front on the side, the Boy Scouts. We get to park here. Um, we'll have uh, the classrooms all ready to go. Um, uh, so you can really ask anyone in leadership. Um, we are also planning on having a luncheon. Um, to celebrate afterwards, so please plan on staying to celebrate with us. Uh, quick note on children's ministry, we'll be full, back in full swing. We'll have uh, babies to sixth grade again. Um, just so you know, you're going to check in your student and pick up your student. Check in your student and pick up your student. I know traditionally, if you've, I shouldn't say traditionally, it's we haven't been in uh, Heart Ransom for years, but uh, before the kids came back in, we're not going to do that yet. Probably not. We don't have the, the ability, so you're going to check in your kid and pick them up. Don't forget to pick them up. Um, I think I stressed that enough. Um, yeah, so you, you'll see the parking. You'll see the classrooms. Everything will be labeled. There'll be greeters to help you all along the way. Many of you have already helped inside, so you know what it looks like. So you're like, yeah, we know. Um, but we're just praising God for this milestone. So uh, there'll be people helping you park, and so just leave the spots in front of the building open for families and those who uh, need to get into the building a little bit quicker without walking. And if you're able to park in other places, please do so, like the Boy Scouts and back here and on the side and all that. So praise the Lord. I'm just going to pray to him, praise him, thank him.
and uh, let's do that. God, it's been a long time coming, and uh, but yet for you, you knew when it was coming. So nothing is uh, slow or or in a hurry. Uh, as Proverbs says, it's all in your time. It's at your time. And we were reminded that um, it's all in your hands. So Lord, we are so thankful uh, for this opportunity to gather here today at Wardens as we've been uh, for a long time now. And we thank you for this place. We thank you for Jennifer and thank you for the crew of hers that's helped uh, to facilitate, uh, accommodate us to be here to worship you. And now as we prepare to move to the new building just right on the road, that, um, that it's honoring to you and that uh, we keep the main things the main things. And the plain things are the main things I'm reminded of by Pastor Begg. But Lord, as we move in, we just know that uh, it's a building, it's a place for us to come, to gather, as you tell us to, not to forsake the gathering of the saints to come and worship you. But we also know that that's not our mission. Our mission is to reach the loss and in the discipleship and to grow in your word and to serve. And we pray that that building is just another opportunity to do so. We're looking forward to all that you have in store. And just reflecting, Lord, that uh, your word is true and you are faithful. So, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to, uh, we want what you want, Lord, and uh, we want to serve you well. So we thank you for this building, Lord, and just all that it will mean and represent. Uh, but ultimately, Lord, it's for your glory, as all things are. So we thank you and we love you, and we praise your name. Amen. Amen. We should clap for God one more time. I'm just thankful. But really, thank you all that... that for who, who've served um, tangibly with your trades and your skills and your abilities. Uh, it wouldn't have been done without you. Thank you for your faithfulness and giving, your tithes and offerings, and, and now for your service and your continued service. So praise the Lord. So with that, we're going to continue on in our series in Ezra, our second week in Ezra. So if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please turn to Ezra 1, and we're going to read verses 5 through 11. Ezra 1, 5 through 11. <clears throat> and it reads, Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to the voluntary offerings. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that the King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his own gods. Cyrus directed Meredith, the treasurer of Persia, to count these items and present them to Shazabazar, the leader of the exiles returning to Judah. This is the list of the items that were returned. Golden basins, 30. Silver basins, 1,000. Silver incense burning burners, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Silver bowls, 410. And other items, 1,000. In all, were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shals Bazar brought all of those along with him, with the exiles, went from Babylon to Jerusalem. A brief prayer. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your spirit that guides us. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, as we read throughout the Bible and in our own experience how good you are and that you're faithful and that you do what you say you're going to do and that when you make a covenant, 
you keep it, despite the fact that we try to mess up and we do mess up. So Lord, thank you for your word again. Just pray that you use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, don't prepare our hearts to receive your word through your spirit. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. I almost drank from the baby bottle, but... So we're in the second week in our new series in Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, the title of the series that I've been, I, I decided to call this is Rebuilding Hope. And last week I gave a big overview or a thousand foot overview of the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. Once, once again, it was one book and then somewhere along the line, somewhere during the Middle Ages or just before the Middle Ages, they thought it would be a good idea to split it in two. But the title Rebuilding Hope uh, was intentional. I was really praying through, as I mentioned, this series and anticipating our move into the building and just to remind us that, uh, as we will see, spoiler alert, it's not all about the building. It's not all about the temple. In this case, this temple that uh, gets rebuilt 400 years, just after 400 years, gets destroyed. So, But rebuilding hope. In prep, and again, in preparation, just considering what does hope mean, and why rebuilding hope, hope of the new temple for the Jewish people, but ultimately leading to the hope of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. But sometimes, perhaps I would say many times, hope is not something that goes from no hope, hope. No hope, hope. It's not a light switch, at least in my experience. Many times hope doesn't appear on the scene, and even if it does appear on the scene. Sometimes it takes a while for people or myself to trust in that hope. It really is a rebuilding of hope. And as Christians, we know or should know that we have hope in our Savior in Jesus Christ, yet there are times we can look in the world and think, there's no hope. I mean, Sandra just came up here and talked about abortions. I mean, when you just look at that by itself and everything else that's going on, just conflict or anything else, there's no hope. Or perhaps we think hope is one day when we get to heaven or one day when the Lord returns, but yet that's not what Jesus Christ said. He said there's hope now. At this moment, there's hope. So I've come to appreciate more and more that the reason for the struggle of hope has less to do with God less to do with the world, but more to do with me. We might masquerade the lack of hope or say the lack of responding to hope as a safeguard against being disappointed or hurt again. We may even say, I believe God is good and he is sovereign, but I want to wait and see what the world will look like. We may not respond to hope just like that, but perhaps we're cynical or maybe even worse, lazy. We say things like, I've seen this before. In all of my years, I've seen this before. I appreciated that life group on Wednesday night. Someone who was 16 told me that in all their years. <laughs> but yeah, as quickly as I am to laugh at that, and probably you did too, that really is all of their years. Just like all of my years is 40. All of your years is whatever your age is. 
But if our own experiences, our, if our hope is only based on our experience and not God's promises, we will fall short. And I think that's what the Israelites will do. Again, we say things, we've seen this before. It starts off so promising. Like whenever you hire a new employee or you get a new job and everything seems to go right the first week. And then you get your paycheck and it's not so right. Thanks, taxes. Or whatever it is, you become disappointed. You start off in the marriage and everything is great and then you get back from the honeymoon. You have children and they're just so cute and then they don't sleep. On and on and on you, you can look for, complain about experience. But for the Israelites, the rebuilding of hope began in captivity, in exile. And I know that sounds weird, but I think it's true. The rebuild for the Israelites has always, up to this point, and although we haven't worked our way chronologically through the Old Testament, but hope began in captivity, in exile, in the exodus, in a bad king. All you have to do is start from the fall of man and see over and over again that hope began at the moment of sin. Exodus, wandering in the wilderness. All you have to do is read through Judges, and most of the Judges starts off with they, the Israelites sinned in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord sold them into captivity. But hope began at their failure because God hadn't failed. God used Jeremiah to tell the Israelites this very thing, and we covered it last week, and I'll, I'll touch on it, but I'll try not to repeat it so much. But I think this is an important part to, to grasp here. Jeremiah told the Israelites well before this happened that you've sinned against God. Someone's going to come take over. Specifically, the Babylonians are going to come and take over. Why, you may ask? Two main reasons. One, you started worshiping false idols even though you super-duper promised you'd never do it again. And second, you disobeyed the Sabbath. I know I brought that, again, brought that up last week, but just a quick note on that, on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest, specifically a day of rest with the Lord, spent with God. And God established that right from the beginning. On the seventh day, he rested, or he was with his creation. God really means it that we need rest, a Sabbath. But it's not just for the people. Sabbath is not just for the people. In our vanity as people, I think it's real easy to think it's all about us. Sabbath was also for the animals. Consider the ox that plowed the field. They got rest. If you were supposed to rest, that means your animals, your equipment was supposed to rest. It was also for the field itself. It was also for the people who worked for other people. It was also for the slaves. That's why every seven years, debt would be forgiven completely. The land would rest or be replanted on the seventh year, not just to be uh, used all year long. And then the year of Jubilee, which would be seven times seven. So 40, on the 49th year, a full rest of the land of people. Who here would like a year off? Me, <laughs> Everyone. But yet, in the back of my mind, starting day one, hour three, man, what am I going to do? We have that in us just to continue to work, and I think it's really not just a Western culture thing. I think it's a people thing. 
But on the 49th year, everything was to rest. The Israelites disrespected that, never allowed anything to rest, worked on it. And Jeremiah said, it's because you didn't rest and was with God. And you didn't rest to be with God. You allowed other idols to come in. And now you're going to go in exile. So Jeremiah not only told the people that they were going to go in exile, it's one of the very few times that the, the Lord used someone to tell specifically how long. So if, you were, if anyone in here was about to go in exile, if anyone was about to go into a hard season, who would love to know when it was going to end? Me, 100%. I'd circled that date on my calendar and just wait and celebrate. So not only in God's grace did he let the Israelites know they were going to go into exile, he also let them know that it was only going to last 70 years. <laughs> only 70 years. So let's read real quick Jeremiah 29, 4, and 10. Because, because when also when Jeremiah was, came to them and told them, hey, you're going to go in exile, you worship false gods, idols, and you didn't take a Sabbath, he also gave them instructions in what to do for that 70 years. So let me read that to you from Jeremiah 29, 4 through 10. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he, have, he has exiled to Babylon and Jerusalem. Side note real quick. Whenever Jeremiah uses that term, Lord of heaven of armies, you will see that it is associated whenever people are going into or out of exile. It's a way for God to say, I've got this because I have a full army. It's Again, it's the beginning of the rebuild of hope. Anyways, verse five, build homes is what he says. So you're gonna go be captives in exile in Babylon from Jerusalem, verse five, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon to trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. What a promise. But you see those, those few things that Jeremiah says? He says, while you're there, don't just go wallow and complain. Build homes. Be prosperous. Plant gardens. Eat the food. Marry. Have children. Then find spouses for them. Have many grandchildren. Multiply. Don't dwindle away. Don't just lay there and say, woe is me. And work for peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Isn't that interesting? That even before they go into exile, God tells them to already start working for peace with the people there, those pagans. We got to get along with those pagans. And why? For its welfare. That will determine your welfare. And then he says, and then verses 8 through 9, he, he talks about false prophets because at that time, uh, the, the people in Babylon, Babylonian would send people to go tell the Israelites, oh, the Lord said it was going to be 200 years, 300 years, 400, just lying to them to discourage them. 
And then again in verse 10, it says, Then the Lord says, You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. He's saying, I have not forgotten you. Although I haven't sent you in exile yet, I have not forgotten you. So hold on to that promise. So 70 years, that, that's, that's about two more generations afterwards. So if you consider it, you, the, the Israelites are now under the Babylonian rule. Now they have children and grandchildren. There are people who are born in exile who have never been home, who have never been in Jerusalem. And now we're at the point where the 70 years is over and the return. So let's look at let's go back to Ezra here in verse 1 of 1 Ezra 1:1. 1, 1. Two main things I want to point out. The first one is the stirring of the heart. God stirs the heart. Let's read that Ezra 1:1 1, 1. in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia the Lord fulfilled the prophecy the one we read he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and send it through this kingdom. And that's what we went over last week. He stirred the heart of Cyrus. That word stirring just means basically the word picture, if you will, is he reached down to his heart and shook it and got his attention. He woke him up. And he responded. Then if we go and skip down and read verse 5, then the God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. It's the same stirring. It's the same idea. But what's interesting is, is you notice that God stirred the heart of the enemy first before his people. On the side note, God a lot of times works in other people's lives before he even, before we even realize that it's a thing. And I'm not calling my wife an enemy, so I just wanted to qualify that before my next statement. Although she's with the kids, I probably could, but I'm just kidding. But it's Mother's Day. But it, it's, it's the same thing that I've noticed that whenever, whenever God's stirring my heart and I feel like God is speaking to me, then I go and, and talk to Natalie about it. And it's almost always, probably always, she's like, yeah, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you to catch up. I mean, even whenever we went into full-time ministry, and I know I've told this story before when I felt like God said, all right, no more engineer and pastor, just be a pastor. I put a PowerPoint together to present to her why we should go into full-time ministry. <laughs> Nerd, I know. She loves me. So when I sit down and I say, all right, I feel like God is calling me into full-time ministry, and I put this, and she said, good, because I've been waiting for you. Can we look at the PowerPoint? Because I did a lot of work. Like, God, was, God had already prepared Natalie way before he got my attention. And that's my spouse. But to see that God had already stirred the heart of the bad guy, of the new bad guy, not Nebuchadnezzar who originally took over, but God sent another bad guy, the Persian bad guy, Cyrus, to come and he stirred his heart. Don't you think God can take care of the leaders of the world? Yes. So he stirs the heart, and then he stirs the heart of the leaders. It's very intentional that Ezra, I'm assuming it's Ezra, because in chapter 6, instead of him talking about um, us, he says me. But anyways, so Ezra is very intentional of saying the order in which God worked, the order of operation, if you will. So the great return. So if you were in captivity for 70 years and you found out, 
and the big bad guy said, it's time to go home, don't you think everybody was like, yeah, let's go home. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's rebuild the temple. Let's connect back to God. We'll read in Ezra 2, under 50,000 people went. You're like, that's a lot of people. There was over a million Jewish people in exile at this time. In uh, chapter 2, verse 64, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. 42,360 people specifically were the ones who returned, plus all of the other people that came to help them. Less than 5% of the people were excited to get out of exile. That's weird. But then when you think about it, don't we do the same thing? Don't we get comfortable with where we're at? And then when God stirs our heart, we're like, oh, but I like it here. They get comfortable. They got used to it. I mean, Jeremiah told them, I could see the whole excuse, the whole exchange. Well, Jeremiah told us to build homes. Look at this pretty home I built. Don't you know that I have to travel 900 miles over 900 miles to get to Jerusalem? And once we get there, it's a wasteland. For 70 years, it's been destroyed. There's nothing there. I'm actually pretty successful in my business here in captivity. I'm actually doing very well. I get along with all my Persian friends. I have children and grandchildren. Things are going good. And then the excuse would be, and we've probably used it before, or I've heard it before, better the devil you know than the one you don't. Well, that's a lie. The devil's bad. Why are we messing with the one we know and we don't know? But here, 42,360 people in the first wave, the remnant is what it's called, says, yeah, let's, let's go. The rest, stay. Why would you stay in captivity? Why would you? A couple of reasons. I already mentioned, you got comfortable. You've adjusted your lifestyle to fit in your captivity. It's the same reason why uh, we, are, we get comfortable in the sins, the beseeching sins or the sins we repeat over and over again because we're comfortable with it. We may not like it. We've gotten used to it. But this whole restoration of the temple, it sounds exciting. Think about the original people who are now well in their years, who are over 70 years old, and they're thinking, Oh, it would be so nice to see that temple rebuilt again. But then the second generation and the third generation, like what temple? Like we, Grandpa, we heard you talk about it, but whatever. Like inner home is fine. So there's a stirring of the heart, but only less than 5% of the people respond because they're comfortable. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But then the next thing that happens in verse 7, King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed them in the temple of his own gods. And it gives a list. And if you add up that list, it does not add up to 5,400. I did the math and it frustrated me. Excuse me, I have a question. Where's the other stuff? What's that other stuff? 
It's not important. So if we just go through the, the gold basin, the silver basin, the silver incense burning, golden bowls, silver bowls, and other items, all of these items were in order to come and worship the Lord in the temple and a, to atone for sin. All these were used in the temple. So when Nebuchadnezzar came in and ransacked everything, Nebuchadnezzar was a weird dude. What he would do is he would go in, take all this stuff that he knew specifically was to worship for other nations' gods and take it in and just throw it in a pile. Just simply throw it in the pile. If you want to read this, you can go back and, and read it uh, earlier in, in uh, Jeremiah, his account in Second Chronicle or First Chronicles, excuse me, and it, and it says he tore away or broke off. That just simply means he just took it and threw it in. But the other thing he would do is whoever was in a leader, he would chain them all together and keep them down there too. He treated other kings and leaders like baseball cards. So whenever his friends would come over, he would say, hey, you guys want to go in the man cave and look at my collection of kings and their stuff? And what's interesting here is that King Cyrus himself, himself, said, hey, here's all of the stuff that you were lost, which also means since there's a number, it was accounted for. We don't have a record that Nebuchadnezzar accounted for it, but what we do know is that Cyrus himself, again, the stirring of God, organized it or had people organize it in such a nice order and saying, hey, look, here's your 30 golden basins, here's your thousand silver ones, here's your incest burner. I just imagine in my own mind, he was like, look at this cool gold bowl. It's yours too. Like you guys get to take this because I know it's important to you. And then a commentary by Brenneman, he says this, he says, when a king captured a nation, he would take the nation's gods or images of the gods and cult objects to his own capital. This symbolized the victory of his gods over the gods of the subjected people. So in addition to their great value as beautiful and costly objects, to symbolize religious values. So in 587, Nebuchadnezzar had carried these objects to Babylon. Cyrus's decision to return these objects used to Israelite worship. It was specifically for the worship. So Cyrus knew that this was important for their faith. A pagan king gave the Israelites the items he knew that was important to them. And I know that's probably difficult for us because we don't necessarily have something that helps us worship God or come to God. Perhaps maybe a Bible, uh, a Bible that's been passed down. Perhaps, I mean, we're not different faiths, wear different things, or maybe you have a tattoo of your favorite scripture, whatever. But it's not the same. But for them, this was the way that they were going to atone for their sin, which is important to remember because for 70 years, the Israelites were not able to atone for their sin. For us, we take it for granted. God, please forgive me. Thank you. Amen. And I don't mean to be so flippant about it, but we can come directly to God because of Jesus Christ. They haven't. And to uh, further spoiler alert, in 400 years, just over 400 years, the Romans are going to come in and destroy this temple. And the temple hasn't been rebuilt to this day. The Jewish people of the nation of Israel, the Israelites there living there today, have not atoned for their sin for all of this time. 
currently in the place where the temple should be built is that big golden dome that you see in all the pictures. It's, it's a Muslim temple that's owned by the Muslims in Jordan. It's weird. It's in Israel, but it belongs. So the Israelites have not atoned properly for their sins in all of this time. In nearly 1,600 years. However, six or seven years ago, there were some radical Jewish people who tried to sneak in a, a lamb to make a sacrifice, but they prevented it. So they get to this current generation of Ezra, gets to go to the temple, rebuild the temple. We'll read that they're going to worship God again. They're going to rebuild the wall, but only, well, less than 5% of the people only care to do that. But let's think about this. Let's, let's consider this. I mean, the title of this sub-series is, is for the, today is called Stirred Heart, Cemented Feet. Have you ever had a moment where God was stirring your heart to do something, but you just couldn't do it, didn't do it? You felt like your feet were in cement, or you white-knuckled it? You knew you should do it, but you talked your way out of it? I don't know about you, but I'm really good at talking myself out of things that I'm supposed to do. Eh, that's usually how I do. Eh, you know, I got plenty of time. Why do something today when I can do it last minute and stress? Anyone, anyone do that? For those of you who are on top of it and you get all your homework done the day that it's, it's uh, assigned, God bless you all. But really what, what's going on here is God has stirred the heart of a pagan king. He stirred the heart of the people. Less than 5% go. But what God is intending to do here is to renovate the hearts of the people and their lives. It, consider your a home uh, renovation. When you get down to the bones of the home, the frame, and you find that there's water damage, do you simply just put up more sheetrock and pretend that it wasn't there? Maybe some of you, I hope not. No, you, you, you not only fix the frame, replace the wood, whatever it is, but don't you look for the reason there's water damage in the first place? Or do you say, nah, it'll be fine, I got another couple years to go. You don't simply build over it, paint over it, sheetrock it, you get it out. And you not only get it out, you look for the source of the, the leak, the problem. And that is what God did at the very beginning by sending them back into exile. Like your heart, your heart isn't right. Because if you simply just stay here in the temple, you'll just get fat and lazy. So the journey begins by God stirring in our heart what we're supposed to do. That's why again... When we read in First John, we love him because he first loved us. He first initiated it. He initiated in Cyrus, the pagan king. Then he stirred up those to return. God first stirred uh, the heart of the oppressor, the new bad guy. And again, many times God is already doing a work even before we realize he's doing a work in us. And again, re seeing how God is working again in us should stir in us the desire for other people to know that. 
And this really is a reminder that God has called each person to return to Jesus. Ultimately, the Old Testament is the story of the Messiah coming. And this is why the temple eventually gets destroyed again. Because the Israelites at this time think, once we get this temple, we'll be good. We can atone for our sins. Everything will be fine. But actually, when we get to the very end of Nehemiah and then we cross over into First Chronicles, we'll see that the story ends the same way it begins, but with a caveat of, this isn't the temple. That's why, people, that's why the people got so offended by Jesus when he said, uh, destroy this temple, but in three days I will rebuild it. And in their mind, they were thinking, do you know how long it took Ezra and Nehemiah and all those guys to build it? And you're going to rebuild it in three days? And, God, and Jesus was saying, no, you don't get it. I am the temple. I am the atonement. It's a retelling of the story of God coming and saving us again and again. That's all the Old Testament is. God saves sin, exodus. God saves sin, exodus. God saves sins, exodus, it's, it's the same thing. And, and the story, as we continue on in the stirring of the heart, the, the journey of this story, hopefully, is to realize that God is inviting us to respond to the stirring of our heart by the Spirit of God. Again, there's a place for everyone in this new world, this new home. The kingdom of Jesus is the only home where everyone finds a place. The singers, the builders, the young, the old, the nobles, and the peasants. But I would suggest, like these Israelites who are like, ah, I just, you know, I, I build a nice home. I have a nice garden. I got a good job. I don't want to go. It's the same thing that when we get comfortable here on earth, we are sojourners. We are pilgrims here. Yeah, but, you know, this is nice. It's It's not great, but it works out. But this invitation of God stirring in our hearts is for everyone. And the Spirit begins to stir in our hearts to respond to the journey. And yet, as we go back and we see that King Cyrus has returned all of their stuff, again, this is a symbol of what was taken from us. Not the things, the tangible things, but what was taken from us because of sin was our relationship with Christ. And that, with Cyrus returning this back, is the same thing as the return back to us to Christ. Again, if we fast forward and consider that the Jewish people now are waiting for the third temple to be rebuilt. And then if we read in Revelation that we're waiting, seeing the third temple, and they would point, the Jewish people don't believe in Revelation, the end times, because they're still waiting for the Messiah to come, as Christians are waiting for the Messiah to return. As the Jewish people are waiting for atonement, we live in the atonement of Christ. It's a reminder that Jesus has to destroy the things in our life that isn't good. That isn't of him. And sometimes the rebuilding of our hope begins when we are kicked out of the garden. When we have to face the consequences of our sins. Uh, When we realize that it's no longer shame and guilt but forgiveness. That's the rebuilding. 
And that's what God is doing here. And the Israelites just don't see it. They see it as a building. And I would suggest that's what kind of happens in our lives. When something bad happens, we automatically assume a couple of things. Someone did wrong. We did wrong. This isn't unfair. But yet, through God's providence, he's walking us through the whole rebuilding to get back, our, not our stuff, but our relationship back to him. So the journey ends with Ezra and Nehemiah by seeing again that God is stirring and we all have an opportunity to respond to the stirring, this invitation. A home that they've never seen yet. This stirring, this go to Jerusalem, rebuild this temple, rebuild this wall, rebuild this altar. You'll see that that's the first thing they rebuilt. God is stirring in their heart a home they've never seen. Now what's a home that we've never seen? heaven. Yet, in God's promises, through his word, he's faithful. In my father's home, there are many rooms. Well, we haven't seen those rooms. So this world is, as it, this world as it is, will never feel like home for us. And we will always feel like strangers and aliens. And yet, as we are humbly in fear of the coming of the Lord, eagerly anticipating we're seeing that this, our life right now, is just the retelling of the story of Exodus out of Egypt, foretelling of Jesus Christ and his forever kingdom on the new earth. We are home now in his presence because of what he's done, but yet we are waiting, the not yet. It's the whole concept of the now, not yet. We are saved in Christ, but not yet home, but yet we are home in Christ. However that works. But don't you long for home? But yet while you're not at home, don't you want to do good work for him? Not to get into home, but to respond to the stirring of his heart, of our heart. So the question for us is, how has God been stirring your spirit? What is it that God is spinning in your heart that wakes you up in the middle of the night or early in the morning and you feel like God is calling you to do something, stirring you to do something for him in your spirit. It's almost like a nag, but it's not, an, it's not annoying. It's just there. It's just present. When you start to feel bad and you start to feel like it's nagging, it's because you're walking away from that stirring. So how has God been stirring your heart and your spirit? And have you found peace in that stirring? Do you feel like it's home? Have you gotten lazy in your current home? Are you afraid that God is going to call you, much like the Israelites, to travel 900 miles away to do something for him? Is it something simple as just going across the street down the road or speaking to him? And what we're going to see, in, and we're going to pick up the pace here a little bit and cover two and three here pretty quick next week. But what you will see is the immediate, the, the 5%, the less than 5% who go and go on this dangerous journey and it takes forever for them to get there and they start and there's opposition immediately, right away. And some people are like, well, God, I'm doing what you want. Why isn't this easy? It never is. But yet the stirring of the heart. So rebuilding the hope is the beginning of Exodus, not coming out of it. It's the beginning of exile. It's not coming out of it. Because what we have is Christ. 
So as we consider that, consider what is, what is it that God is stirring in your heart? And what do you need to do to respond to that? For some, perhaps maybe this morning it's just coming to know a relationship with Christ for the first time. Some, it may be coming back to him for the 70th time. For some of us, it's we're walking with the Lord, but yet he's calling us, preparing us to do something. So whatever it is, just consider, what is it that God is stirring in your heart? This morning, we're going to receive communion together, and uh, we're going to sing a couple more songs, and as we do so, just consider, what is it that God is stirring? And is, is there anything that I have in this world that I'm not willing to give up? Is that something God is stirring? And I'm not saying, saying that we have to sell all our possession, become nomads, unless it is, that is what God has called you to do. But I would suggest that that stirring in the heart that God did so long ago in Cyrus's heart, this Jewish people's heart, it's the same God that's stirring in our heart. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you, as Jeremiah reminded us, that you are the Lord of heaven's armies. And you are the God that speaks to us in a small, still voice. And how you can be both of those. Lord of a heaven army, and yet you speak to us in such a quiet voice. Lord, as you stir in our heart to respond to whatever it is, Lord, we just pray that um, we'll be faithful. Even if we're slow to respond, Lord, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful to allow us to to follow you, even if we feel like it's delayed. Lord, as we read that uh, these articles of worship and atonement were given back from Cyrus, we're thankful that we don't need articles to be atoned, to atone for our sins, that it is Christ who atoned for our sins, that once we put our faith and trust and confess our sins, that you are faithful, he is faithful. So Lord, as we consider these things, will you Uh, Just prepare our hearts, Lord. Again, we are so thankful for the building that we'll move into. Uh, We also continue to lift up for the unborn, lift up to you the unborn children, Lord, and their mothers. Lord, we do pray that you begin to stir the hearts of those who oppose you, those leaders who, just like King Cyrus, was completely against you, but yet you stirred his heart. So we pray that you do that here in this nation, in this world. But Lord, as you were, as you take care of those people, help us take care of our hearts and give them to you. So we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.